Welcome back to Autopsy of a Horror Movie. My name is Brucker, and today I am discussing the 1982 slasher that is the Slumber Party Massacre. And today I am joined by friend of the show, Ellie, the writer of Bad Critic. Hello, Ellie. How are you doing? Hi there. How are you doing? I'm I'm surviving. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> I'm excited to talk about this movie. Thank you so much for coming on. And this is your second time back on the show. If mm-hmm. people are not familiar, Elliot was on during my What's Your Favorite Horror Trope series that I did that a lot of people really liked. And I believe we talked about, I know we talked about like technology because we talked about that one, uh, that, that sci-fi show. Shit, what was it? Oh, uh, probably, it was probably X-Files. X-Files. Yeah, we talked yeah. about, yeah, we talked about an X-Files episode briefly. Yeah. And we kind of talked about some, talked some about other Final things. Girls too stuff, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So everybody go check out that episode with Ellie. But um, It's a great series. You should listen to all of them. Thank you. And I do plan on doing that again because I know a lot of people really enjoyed that. And that was honestly a lot of fun yeah. uh, talking with people and just hashing out the genre in terms of tropes. That was so much fun. But you write a bunch of movie reviews and articles and editorials. Uh, would you mind just kind of telling us a little bit about that and where people can find you and your website? Yeah, sure. So I'm, uh, I, everything's centralized around Instagram, uh, cause I can, I can focus on one thing at a time there. Um, but yeah, I cover independent movies. I cover horror movies. I try to talk about, um, uh, not just like the art itself, but sort of the labor that goes into it. I talk about how it impacts me and how it makes me feel. And, um, I try to write longer form essays too, about whatever's gnawing away at my mind. And sometimes they're super, um, or they seem super easy. Like I ranked all of Paul Thomas and Anderson's movies. Um, and sometimes they're really difficult. Like I tried to write about The Shining at the end of last year and it almost broke my brain. So um, <laughs> if you go to my Instagram page, there's a link tree in my bio and you can access all of my crazy content right there. Yes. And I will be sure to put links in the show notes. And before we get going, I also have to pay the bills and let people know that today's episode is brought to you by Horror Press. Be sure to go to horrorpress.com where you can find really awesome reviews and editorials on horror. There's all sorts of horror fans there that are part of that community that just pour their heart and soul into all these awesome editorials and reviews, which I plan on using as source material source material for some upcoming episodes. They got a really good article on The Evil Dead, which I finally just checked off my box recently, thanks to Shudder, because that's on there. So be sure to go check out horrorpress at horrorpress.com. Links in the show notes now, today. Slumber Party Massacre. Yes! This is an insane movie, and I kind of wanted to do this because in the near future, I will be releasing an episode on my deep dive into the first chapter of uh, uh, Carol Clover's book, Men, Women's, and Chainsaws. And I thought that this this was like a good primer episode for that discussion. And this is... If people are not familiar with the Slumber Party Massacre from 1982, I think that it is a very fascinating case study for the male gaze theory because while this movie is incredibly sexually exploitative of women, there is just tons of nudity. There is an infamous locker room shower scene in this that is just just insane but it will surprise people that this movie was both written and directed by women and mostly performed by women as well but we will kind of get into the nuances of all that in a little bit but ellie what is your history with the slumber party massacre 
That was a great recap, first of all. I have no history with this movie at all. I'm woefully behind on my, like, um, exploitation era, 80s uh, <laughs> horror, like, slasher horror movies um, knowledge. And so I've been, I just, when you messaged me to talk about this movie, I had just been so happy on catching up on tons of these, like, like, I was watching The Hills Have Eyes. I'd never seen Texas Chainsaw 2. So I was just, like, really in it. And so this movie slid right into my into my uh my viewing experience um yeah i had a great time watching it too uh despite despite all the male gaze yeah and that is the thing and i will definitely be getting into that because amy holden jones who is the director of this movie she has a lot of things to say about this that i think are very interesting about criticisms Mm -hmm. that she got about being exploitative in this but we will kind of circle back to that in a little bit so before you watched this though were you familiar with this movie at all or had I, you like heard of it i had just heard it in passing referenced within this kind of like ridiculous campy exploitation genre um and that's pretty much all i knew about it and i i looked up a little bit about who made it and then uh you had mentioned that there was like some conflict between the the women who directed it and wrote it and the people who produced it and so I was like I kind of want to go in cold to see like whatever knowledge Brucker is going to drop on me and, <laughs> and I'm just going to experience the movie for what it is and then I'll learn about it later on so yeah. that's kind of how I approached this the first time I watched it I found this on Shudder like two two and a half years ago something like that whenever I first got Shudder I just mm-hmm. went straight into their slasher uh, section and everything i just kind of added a bunch of stuff to my queue so like i added this sleepaway camp haunt a bunch of other stuff just to, to just just get just give me all like these 80s cheesy campy uh-huh. slashers just because like i don't know i'm just interested in that and i watched it and one the runtime was very appealing this is only a 74 minute movie so it's pretty quick uh-huh. you're in and you're out and i remember watching this just going like, wow this is kind of insane the 80s were fucking nuts man mm-hmm. and just like with how much nudity and everything is in this and just the way that like the dialogue was done and everything and yeah so, my, fa- so- my favorite line of dialogue it starts with like you know i think your tits are getting bigger i was like that's absolutely something people say to each other in the shower for sure women do oh, say to each sure. other i think your tits are getting bigger Yes, and then they have that kind of gleeful response. Really? Or no, no, they say, who's mine? You know, they, everybody's like, oh. I remember that. going to an all-girls school, we definitely, that's all we talked about was like pointing at each other's tits. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was sarcasm, by the way. <laughs> you've ever been a teenage girl, you know, like, that's all you want to hide. Like, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, this is, and it's also, there's that. that's another, like, good point, is that there's something that's a little extra not little something that is extra creepy about this is that you kind of forget that these are supposed to be high schoolers mm-hmm. and we're having this shower scene with high schoolers i mean this movie opens up on a high school student just immediately getting naked mm-hmm. and in and front of an open window we also in front of an open window and also th- do that for sure yeah thankfully though moments later she confirms that she is 18 so it's like all right well thank god we didn't watch a minor do that but still I didn't pick up on that. fucked. <laughs> that's true they make a real point of being like you are 18 yes i am 18 <laughs> jesus christ yeah, yeah it's so I, I guess i guess while we're talking about that i'll go ahead and get into it but yeah. about amy holden jones and how she got into this and the exploitation stuff and everything so 
Amy Holden Jones, back in the day, she was an industry editor. She edited a bunch of movies and she actually was friends with Martin Scorsese. Where she went to film school, it was primarily primarily focused on like making documentaries and editing documentaries and shooting documentaries. And I don't know how it how it worked out or anything, but like during like her like thesis or whatever, Martin Scorsese was like one of the judges for it. And he really liked her work and they became uh, kind of like acquaintances. And so he had, he introduced her to a bunch of people in the industry and she edited some of his movies. So she became buddies with Martin Scorsese. Martin Scorsese introduced Amy Holden Jones to the producer of this movie, Roger Corman. And Roger Corman did movies like this and, and um, Chopping Mall and a bunch of other movies too. And this was kind of like his bread and butter. These exploitative slashers where there's blood and boobs and there was and so she so she got introduced to roger corman through martin scorsese which is fucking crazy to think this movie exists indirectly because of martin scorsese Mm -hmm. but so she kind of got put into roger corman's wheelhouse of editors and then this script came came about and the script was written by rita may brown and so there's an opportunity and an opening for somebody to direct this and she was kind of recommended on it. And of course she had Scorsese's backing and everything. And she's been working with Roger Corman. So she had, she had some of the bona fides to go ahead and do this, but do you want to hear the job she turned down to direct this movie? Oh no. So, because she wanted to break into directing. The other wait, job wait, wait. was an let, edit. Let me, let me see if I can guess it. So it was okay, in 1982. Talking, 1982, another big movie in 1982. Is, was the other movie also directed by a woman? No, it was not. Oh, okay. Um, damn. Was it Wall Street? No. No. Was it... Uh, okay, never mind. That's it. I was going to guess American <laughs> Psycho too, but I was like... I think that was like, like 90 a later decade. something? That was 90s, yeah. yeah. Late 90s. So, so she wanted to break into directing, so she took her chance with, with Slumber Party Massacre, So, but to do so, she had to turn down an editing job, and she turned down editing E.T. for Spielberg. Oh, to, fuck. to do this, <laughs> which I mean, you know what? You're but trying I, to break into the business. You know, how many how many dir- uh, directorial roles are really being offered to women at the time anyways? So I 100 percent understand that decision. Yeah. I also think you should make your own art um, if you have the chance uh, and making a movie is really hard to do and really expensive to do. So if you have funding to do it, you should do it. But also, I have I really don't like E.T. at all. <laughs> I really hate that movie. <laughs> I don't know if I'm an outlier on that. But so I'm like, a, I'm kind of a good job, girl. Like, you did a good good, good choice. <laughs> You're like, Slumber Party Massacre is better than E.T., right? I can make that argument if you want me to. <laughs> is that going to be your next article? I think that should be your next editorial that you do. <laughs> I, have some, I have some wild ideas that I'm cooking up. I don't know if I want to spoil them yet, but... One of them definitely involves Twilight, so. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I find that fascinating, just like that web of Hollywood connections of how she Absolutely. got to this point. And I do think it's cool because I, so I have the Blu-ray of this and I got to w- kind of watch this. It's only like a 25 minutes, like bonus, like behind the scenes, like interview with her talking about this years later. And it's her and a few other of the actors, including the guy who plays the killer in this, Russ Thorne. And it was really interesting hearing all of them talk about this experience and Amy Holden Jones putting her spin on things because she worked with Rita Mae Brown on like kind of fixing the script a little bit. 
I, I'm not sure about exactly like certain plot points she changed or dialogue or anything like that. However, she definitely like framed things the way she wanted to to convey the message that she thought that this was really saying and everything. And it's she has some very wild quotes about her messaging of this movie in in that interview. But and we will get to that towards the end of this end of this discussion. But I'm very excited she, to hear them. So this movie is obviously very sexually exploitative and the the whole like male gaze part of this is that I think that this is an interesting case study for that because even though it's being written and directed by women, it still has that male gaze approach because of Roger Corman, because he's telling them what he wants. And we get that infamous shower scene, locker room shower scene that's in this. And it does, at least to me, like the first time I watched this, I was a little uncomfortable because I was like, wow, we're like still in this like we're still in the showers with them like we're really focusing on this one person's body like literally slowly going up and or going down and then back up and everything Mm -hmm. it is pretty insane insane and she said that that was this was all kind of on purpose because she wasn't necessarily happy that she had to do all this check all these boxes for roger corman with the nudity and everything so she, so she said that this shower scene was kind of just like, this is what you want? Fine, you're going to fucking get it. Well, the poor girls, they knew that going in, they had to do that. Because, um, you know, when you did a film for Roger, there were certain expectations. Tits, butts, blood. I guess that was the, the way it went. Nudity was more important to him than sex. And, you know, he has to sell the thing. I find that the shower scene a little squeamish to watch, watch because it's very pro forma. You can see by the way I did it that I'm like just hitting and I'm, okay, you want it, here it is. Here's the nudity, that's it. And it, it was kind of the way I'm taking it in her tone and everything. It was very much like this was like a middle finger, like, fuck you. Like, if you're going to make me do it, I'm going to make it basically softcore and porno mm-hmm. at this point. And it's, it's, it's kind of interesting because it's like, because I feel like that that would speak to people very differently. Um, but I feel like only like some people will kind of like get of just like how like she's making a point of like, don't you feel weird sitting down watching this right now? And like, this yeah. is just really fucking creepy. <laughs> yeah, I think that with an opening scene like that, like we were referencing earlier, the the with the main character just like taking off her clothes casually for no reason. And then this like long extended shower scene, it to me felt extru- very intentional and not intentional in the way that like. Um, well, actually the movie that came to mind when I was watching it was Carrie. Carrie has, was, uh, a couple years before, I'm mixing up my dates now, I can't remember if it was 72 or 79, but, you know, the, infamously the opening scene of Carrie is this long extended shower scene sequence with a bunch of teenage girls walking around naked. And it's very focused on Carrie's body. So, um, and the whole movie is kind of creepy in that way where it's like, uh, Anyway, um, I don't want to get in. We can get into Carrie another day. <laughs> but um, to me, I felt immediately like it was a parody of Carrie. So I felt right away, even though I was like, wow, lots of tits. Okay. It did feel very intentional and it did feel very satirical too. Um, so it's mm-hmm. interesting that she like had in her interview, she had that intention too of like, okay, well, like if you want a nudity, you're going to get fucking nudity now. Like, yeah. And she, she definitely like doubled down on it too. Cause apparently she also, it's kind of like that double-edged sword of sorts. Cause she said that she got a lot of backlash from people from being so exploitative in this and everything. She goes, people like Martin Scorsese and all these, and like, um, I think, she, I think she also said like Brian De Palma or like, like a bunch of other well, yeah, male directors. Carry, yeah. 
yeah a bunch of other male directors who do the same thing but don't get the same backlash and she's like just because i'm a woman i'm supposed to be better no this is how you make it in this industry and that's like exactly what she said she goes if you're not going to criticize scorsese you're not going to criticize me yeah because that's kind of the like well that's kind of the the, that's kind of the the catch-22 of the male gaze aesthetic right like it's the it's the we consider it to be the default we consider it to be the norm so and we consider male directors, uh, men in general, male storytellers, really, if you want to expand from just film, to be the default, the norm. So it's so if if we see a movie directed by a man, uh, you know, and there's a lot of sexual imagery in it, we're like, oh, that's the norm. That's just how it should be. And then when a woman steps up, now we're paying attention because it's an outlier. And so there's all these expectations that are put on the outlier to just be better as opposed to just you know like why can't she show like she should show nudity more than the other guys technically speaking if we're gonna follow that logic you know <laughs> we're gonna cr- criticize someone for it um or no one show nudity at all i don't know everyone's fighting but um yeah the, that's the catch 22 of the male gaze is that like we default it's not it's not just that we assume the the, the man behind the camera but we assume that we're selling this image to a man too Right, like it's oh, just assuming that it's it's going to be consumed by men, hetero men too. I should say, like straight dudes. Yeah. Oh, that th- that is also a really good point to yeah. <laughs> to to include in that because I'm just really excited for people to hear the the men, women, and chainsaws discussion because it gets into like this whole theory about the I think it's called the cross gender identification and everything, and it's just oh, yeah. insane. But uh, it's crazy theory. I mean, I think it's cool and super interesting but it's also at the same time you're like wow this is crazy but like it's there yeah that essay is so pivotal and like um it's one of the few essays i ever came across in like two years of college three years of university where someone was talking about horror movies like in film i was in media criticism stuff i was in communication studies and that was really the only time anything official academic came up about horror movies and it's, I mean, it's kind of data because it's very Freudian too. It's like, it kind of equates everything to like a lot of Freudian theory, which is like very outdated now, but mm-hmm. it's still so, it's still like, you know, this is for my notes for once we get to the end of the episode, but like, you know, trash is art too. Like trash art is still art and it should mm-hmm. be analyzed. Yeah. Yes. And like this, like, cause I could see so many, I, was, I saw so many low reviews of this movie because mm-hmm. They, they see the exploitation and they automatically go, this is trash. But there's so much nuance in something like this, I think. I think it's actually kind of like, I'm not, I don't know if I will go all the way and say it's a rich text, but it's a richer text than some people would expect it I to would be. I would 100% say it's a rich text. Something, okay, well, something, I think maybe you just yeah, picked some... up more stuff than me, but yeah, I'm excited to get to that. But yeah, there's yeah. definitely so much here. And like with the, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but the, the, stuff that we were, that you were just talking about with like how since it's a female director there's this expectation that maybe she needs to just be better and not do the exploitation stuff mm-hmm. but when people see the exploitation stuff i feel like they're missing all of the other things that she added to it like there are so many more just like women playing what we would normally see as like uh, male roles like the telephone repair person the person that's installing the the peephole in the door the <laughs> That was my favorite uh, part of the movie was the people. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. You text you, you sent me that a screenshot. I like, um, rewound it like six times. 
Um, and like the the our main cast in this, the principal cast, for most of the movie, they're kind of talking about sports and trying to figure out the who all got hits in the baseball game. Mm-hmm. And so it's there's there's a lot of this. And the the two guys that are in this, Jeff and Neil, the two male friends of the group, they're still pretty much coded as just like you know weird high school boys just wanting to be peeping toms but they at least like say certain things like when they one of them i think jeff was hitting on the telephone repair woman and his friend neil's like dude shut the fuck up let's just go to class like what are you doing and they talked about like going and like scaring the girls or something like that and neil said they could kick our asses we failed the gym twice and he goes yeah you're right So like there's yeah. like little stuff like that that's going on in this that is subverting what we would kind of expect. And one of them even flips her boyfriend over when he like spooks her. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is like should be a lesson to people. It's like never sneak up on somebody. Don't do mm-hmm. it. They might no. kick your ass. Um, so I guess getting a, getting away from the time being about the male gaze stuff that it's about this, yeah. something that really stuck out to this, uh, something that really stuck out to me about this movie in this script is that I just felt like how inspired this seemed to be from Carpenter's Halloween. This kind yes. of seemed like the the beats are very similar. It's a psychopath maniac that escaped out of prison. He's on the loose. He is killing teenage women in it. And it's just, there's like one case of babysitting in this, but and but it's still the same rules. People that go off to have sex die. So it felt, in those senses, it kind of felt, felt very much like that Carpenter Halloween beats in that. And honestly, I dug it. I liked it because it wasn't like a straight off ripoff or anything like that. But I was like, I'm feeling the Halloween inspiration and it's fun. Well, I think it's also has enough distance from when Halloween kind of Halloween's like a genre defying movie, right? Like True. everything that came after Halloween was like trying to be Halloween. So there's enough distance, I think, in the genre that like, okay, you can start referencing it without it being like a copy. Um, and I think it's also another way it's similar to like Halloween and that style of movie is that like there's not really a motivation for the bad guy. The killer doesn't really have a personality, doesn't really you know, he doesn't have some like plan. You don't like get into, he doesn't get a monologue at the end. I think all he says at the end of this movie is just like, I like girls. Yeah. Um, yeah. At the end he says like, so, I love yeah. you and everything. Yeah. yeah. Which we should also talk about that too. That was interesting. No, I mean, if we want to, we can't because so the actor that played Russ Thorne in that like behind the scenes thing I talked about, he got really into this role and oh, he took no. it so seriously. He said, all the actors said that he never spoke to them on set because he didn't want them to feel comfortable or familiar with him. He only introduced himself to them after he had killed them on screen. And he, okay, buddy. he, he said to prepare for this, he read Helter Skelter. And in that book, they talk about how like they like love people or whatever. So that's like where, so that line that he says, I love you. It takes a lot of love for a person to do this. He ad-libbed that. All of you are very pretty. <laughs> Please don't do this. I love you. Please. It takes a lot of love for a person to 
do this? Because that he, was out of Helter he, Skelter, eh? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's where he got this. And I think that's also kind of pretty poignant to just things that this movie, I think, is speaking on, or at least like a lot of metaphors that are in it, and that he's confusing love or lust for, I don't know, just like this violence that he's committing. It's it's very weird. And yeah, Russ, Russ Thorne is a very interesting horror villain yeah i got a lot of uh ted bundy vibes from him honestly um so i did look up when this movie came when this movie was made in relation to when ted bundy was on his killing spree and it wasn't that far off it was a couple years after he was already on death row and interesting like i was trying to place this because like i mentioned earlier about like carol cleaver and everything being super freudian like there's a lot of freud jokes or i think visual gags or they might not have been intended to be funny but i found them very funny um (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot of like freud stuff baked into this and i and i think it's so telling of when this movie existed because the concept of like a serial serial murders specifically like men attacking sort of like a a young quote-unquote pretty women was like still pretty new in the at the time and kind of like a it was not really understood by science like behavioral criminology was still like in its infancy and like i mean it's still kind of lacking in a lot of information in a lot of ways but um yeah he i got a lot of like bundy trauma ted bundy trauma out of out of that character it's interesting that he was inspired by uh by uh, charles manson too because that that's another like big psychic scar i would say like on the on the community yeah yeah absolutely especially like just coming out of the 70s barely too when this is coming out and everything yeah so that that makes a lot of sense i never even thought about the ted bundy aspect of this because i think i was just being a little i was being too literal about what he was doing because mm-hmm. he is i mean he's just slaying people but i mean the metaphor is there i mean his weapon is basically a, a gas-powered <laughs> you know penis i mean it's i mean i mean there's 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 the whole scene where they chop it off and is then emasculating him and i mean that's what it all represents i mean i mean my my favorite shot of the movie um was the scene where she's one of the characters is screaming and it's between his two legs and Mm. the drill drops down like i i don't know if again i can't tell if these were intended to be funny and i and I, i i got the sense watching this movie that like there was someone was in control while they were shooting it, and then someone editing it was like, I'm um, like adding in editing gags almost, or like making gags out of it with the editing. So it was so interesting. You said like she used to work as an editor because I'm like, I There's think this girl knew exactly. Gags, what, yeah, yeah, she knew exactly what she was doing. Oh, yeah. absolutely. And she, I mean, she she talked to the actor that played Russ Thorne about that, you know, about like how to place that and everything because mm-hmm. that metaphor needs to be there for this and everything and she i'll get to when we get to the messaging but her theory about this is not what i was picking up but i mean it's definitely there but i anyways it's it's kind of specific um but i i do love the just i mean this movie's just fun it's campy it's a quick you're in and you're out i think that it's even if you're not wanting to do a deep dive like us which i do recommend doing a deep dive in it because it's fun it's just kind of like, you know, just turn your brain off and watch it. And like, it is really funny, like you're saying. And 
Amy Holden Jones did say that she thinks it's as much as a comedy as it is horror. And that's what was, that was her goal for it. Okay. Um, that that's good. Cause it's, I mean, I laughed a lot and I, and I, and there was so many, I wrote down so many lines like, Oh, I mean like we already mentioned, but like, Oh, hi, Rachel. I was just putting in your peephole. Like to me, that's up there right up there with like, Oh, hi, Mark. Like, you know, it's just like, it's, it's, <laughs> it's so funny. I couldn't stop thinking about it all weekend. Just put it in your people. <laughs> and not checking to see if anybody's on, anybody's on the other <laughs> side. And then just like, okay, bye. Like she just put a hole in the door. Like she yeah. just drilled a hole in it. <laughs> I think my favorite visual gag was Kim being shoved in the fridge. And Courtney just kept opening and closing the fridge. And he, and they put in that little squeaky sound for yep. her, for her butt keeps, like, sliding up against the wall. kind of in and out. Yeah, that's great. Um, <laughs> so yeah. I think that was like one of my favorite visual gags from this. But I mean, yeah, this movie is really funny and it's it's just ridiculous. I think we need to give proper praise to the pizza delivery guy who mm-hmm. shows up at the door with the eyes drilled out. But the brilliant joke of them the guy knocks on the door and he knows the pizza guy like how much is it or what's the damage he says six so far and it's just like god damn it like <laughs> oh, okay later on, and then later on i think it's valerie valerie mm-hmm. oh no no i'm sorry that's not valerie later on one of the girls eats the pizza off of him and she goes is yeah. it cold and he's like i'm not letting this go to waste <laughs> yeah he, they're like he's so cold and she's like is the pizza though and i'm like girl i know you you are me. <laughs> when you need pizza, when you want the pizza, the pizza is going to happen. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. It's just So yeah, this movie this movie has has a bunch of stuff that's in it. Um do you want to go ahead and move on to the subgenre categorization? Yes. Yeah, yeah, subgenre categorization. So this is obviously a slasher, of course. I mean, hundred percent. I don't know if it gets more slasher than this, really. And it's like quintessentially eighties slash slasher too, because it's it has the camp, it has the gore, it has. I mean, like the associated nudity that you think of when you think of slashers as well. And yeah. it, as you said earlier, this is also a very funny movie. It's also a comedy as well. Yeah. I do have a question though. Is this an example, and I can't necessarily think of another one off the top of my head, but is this an example of a horror movie being a hangout movie? Where all the characters hang out together. It's like we're just hanging out. Okay, it's like a comp, like another hangout movie that is like uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We're just hanging out with these characters. Oh, I see. There's not really a storyline. There's not really a story. mm. We're, We're just hanging out with these characters. These characters aren't trying to accomplish anything. Besides having a slumber party, and they just happen to run into cross paths with this killer. I've never considered that in the context of a horror movie, though. So, like, you've just—I'm just—I have to go through my whole catalog now <laughs> and see what would apply. But that's such an interesting way of looking at it, as like the kind of hangout genre, but with some horror in it. Yeah, yeah. because I don't know any other movies or horror movies off the top of my head right this second that it's purely a hangout movie that is that's horror because the rest of the horror movies have some sort of plot to it you know like Mm -hmm. texas chainsaw massacre they're going to visit their grandparents old place like that's that's it 
um, Halloween, who, which I think that this feels very much like, I mean, we get that, that is, there's a lot of moving pieces to that as simple as it is. We get the whole Dr. Loomis stuff. He escaped his childhood background, Lori and the babysitting and all that. Like if it was just Lori in them and you excised the beginning with Michael and all the stuff with Dr. Loomis, I think that would be a hangout movie, but there's already so much there, so much plot there. And this one, the plot is just hanging out. And having it's a sleepover. Like, it's like dazed and confused mixed with Halloween, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, there's there's more it's of like a if plot. If Letter wanted to, like, do, like, murder movies, this would yeah. be it, maybe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I was yeah. wondering, like, is this, like, one of the rare examples of a horror hangout? That's such a cool way to look at it. I think I was so focused on the, like, on the satire of it that I wasn't even thinking of it in genres outside of horror but like we i do that all the time like i i'm always talking about how horror isn't a genre in and of itself it's a reference genre so that makes perfect sense i was like spending so much time i was so obsessed with the side characters though i was like writing backstories for all of them like oh yes the the two, the two friends who were like super focused on all their baseball stats or their softball stats or i can't remember now i can't remember the sport that they played. it was baseball it was baseball yeah um i'm like they're a couple for sure like they're they're the they're like a senior couple sorry <laughs> did, I, did i make you do a spit take <laughs> um yeah i was like they're a couple for sure um the who is the younger sister i can't now i can't remember courtney. her character courtney yeah courtney is my little like ace asexual queen who just has like a very like a, a really clinical fascination with sex and clinical <laughs> fascination like, that's that's the like, way to what put is it any, what is this about i don't understand any of this i was like i love you so much <laughs> i just loved writing like i just i i thought there was so much for a movie that's like so satirical and so on the surface can be seen as straightforward there was so many different like um weird character details that like didn't have like you mentioned earlier like having the like telephone repair woman be a woman is kind of like an interesting is all is is a cool little choice too so i just i loved i think there's a fun queer queer reading of this movie too that i think a better a better uh a better analyzer could do too yeah. oh interesting because if if there was any sort of i was kind of getting the uh, homosexual vibes from the coach just a little bit yeah definitely but she still had like i don't know my fiance and i were watching this together and we're kind of like ju- not judging but like kind of like grading everyone's outfits a little bit and um the 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 coach wears this kind of elegant lacy green robe and it kind of almost looks like something out of like crimson peak almost just a little bit yes and, <laughs> and true i was just like that's and she was just like, I can't believe she's just walking around in her house by herself wearing that robe. I was like, wait, why wouldn't she? She goes, that's too lacy for like a single person to just be wearing. I don't know. <laughs> you know, you gotta, you know, when you live alone, you do what you do. You, you wear nice things sometimes. I don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put on my robe and talk about baseball with the, with the girls. Um, mm-hmm, but yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, Super straight behavior. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, so besides the horror hangout and comedy and satire, any any, any other sort of subgenres you want to get into, or anything else you want to add on to your satire? Oh well, yeah. I, I, so we have to talk about uh, mutilation too, or like a body horror, because I think um, part of the like it's not just a slasher. It's not just like. Um, a teen horror movie but like it's very gory and it's very invasive um so i think like you could definitely put this movie into the like body a little not this maybe not necessarily body horror but definitely like the mutilation like mm-hmm. i'm gonna see some bodies being torn apart there's definite good gore in this which i appreciate mm-hmm. i mean probably the best example is the eyes from the pizza guy is, is there a better one in this uh i don't know i mean i liked it was just like it, it was also a variety. There was, I mean, this sounds so gross. It was like, you can tell we're horror nerds. We're like, I love the variety of mutilation in this movie. Yes, I get bored when it's just stabby stabs. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, honestly. It's like, I, I just saw this in the scene before. And I think, uh, so I, I just think it would, I like that also she's like, yeah, again, I'm going to make an exploitation movie and you're going to see it. I, I, I kind of, that's my, one of my main defenses of the horror genre is that like we this industry is full of violent movies all the time violence is in every movie um it makes a ton of money at the box office it's just that horror shows you the result of the violence like you see an impact of the violence you see the physically you see it emotionally so to me i argue that it's a more honest genre than like action movies Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I'm really happy you said that because I have this theory that because, you know, I do the fear analysis on this. Mm. Every single movie, I think, is motivated by some fear on some level is just what's the tone of the movie they're going after. I mean, like, I don't know. I mean, like even like Ocean's Eleven, I think that's all those characters are motivated by fear, I think. And that's just my theory is that like if you wanted to, you could really twist. You could twist and bend a movie to be like, yeah, this is actually horror if you think about it. Because it's being played off of fear. Oh yeah, there's a there's a horror version of every of every mainstream movie out there, and like it's the it's your basic uh, it's your basic uh, storytelling one hundred and one. What do you, what does the character want versus what does the character need? I wanted to circle back to this being a a slasher because yes, this is a slasher, but I forgot to kind of talk about one of the main components that makes it a slasher is that yeah. the final girl of this and of there's kind of two final girl i guess three if you want to count courtney but mm-hmm. you know we have courtney's sister valerie and trish the the main popular girl in this those are kind of like our main final girls in this and i like that they don't they're not like traditional final girls what we think of like whether or not they're virginal doesn't really come into play in this really i mean we see that one of them has a play girl which is like kind of like i feel like in any other movie like a friday the 13th that would automatically mean okay jason's going to get you just because you have you have contraband you have pornography he's going to get you you know he's like yeah. the u.s army you can't have that uh, <laughs> I th- and, and i thought that was another i thought that was another interesting choice of her to include too i thought that was another little like fuck you in there too because it's like i mean how many we have so many there's a whole pop culture detective uh, video about like the whole peeping Tom and the male gaze mm-hmm. where it's just a compilation of like dudes looking at pictures of naked girls basically or he's analyzing a lot of movies from this time that's just like dudes looking at pictures of naked girls so I thought that was like such a funny gag to have 
a teenage girl looking at some like buff <laughs> some buff dudes <laughs> it, i know it was killing me it was killing me because i was laughing because did you on the cover it's sylvester stallone i was like you gotta be kidding me oh, I, didn't is, see, I didn't even pick up on that oh my god i could be wrong but i swear to god if it's not him it's his doppelganger doing nudes in oh. in his name like because that he looked just like okay i now have to fact now we have to look it up quick. oh my <laughs> gosh <sighs> i'm now about to have playgirls part of my browser history uh <laughs> <laughs> yep that is sylvester stallone it is love good find way to go sly good i mean catch. You, you don't see arnie doing that um mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i also i also want to know if amy holden jones and, and company just be like all right but you gotta pick the one with the right cover i wonder if they had like a lineup of them and they kind of like yeah. had pick which one would have been the most representative of the era and just what these women would have been interested in actually <laughs> yeah i'm like did she pick that one on purpose or did she just pick that one because it was the most recent one that had come out when they were shooting oh that's a good oh damn down that's that's a that's a fun fact about to look up later it's like when did that issue come out exactly yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah. somewhere somebody has that one framed. Like, this is the Sly Stallone playgirl that was in Slumber Party Massacre. That's 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 in the warehouse with the Ark of the Covenant. Some horror, some horror nerd has it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Um, but I think the the last thing I was going to mention about the final girls here is that they are also kind of pretty mean spirited. At least Valerie is. She's pretty mean to her little sister mm-hmm. in this which is like that's a trope of the older sibling being mean but she like she says something about how she wished mom and dad got a divorce before she was born and all this shit <laughs> and she right. says you've been given hand jobs since you were in the fifth grade it's like whoa what the fuck that's your little sister <laughs> and she looks really like courtney looks young in this like they really is, make like and, and they make her act like they give her that the lollipop thing which i was like is that mm-hmm. another nod to like that's like a Freudian thing too. Like Freud has a whole like oral fixation element to his nonsense. Um. <laughs> his nonsense. I love that. So let's go ahead and get into our fear analysis conversation. According to Dr. Carl Albrecht, there are five types of fears that humans share psychologically, and they are the fear of extinction or death, mutilation, body invasion, loss of autonomy, separation or rejection, and finally, humiliation, shame, worthlessness, i.e. the death of ego. Now, we don't have to stick to these five. It's kind of like just to get the juices going, but Ellie, what types of fears do you feel like that this movie's playing off of? Um, well, I think the obvious one is like, definitely mutilation like there's something that's so visceral about like this metal foreign object that's just like invading your flesh you know the like very cronenberg style corkscrew shape of it oh yeah just like it's just like messing everything up in there like it's it's a very um i feel like it's a very like it in to me i it's a very cringy reaction to it like i do very much tense up you know, even though I'm laughing at some of these hilarious quips in the movie. Um, <laughs> but I think that there's something like that on its own is just it's it, ultimately it's just gore. I think like this what the movie really taps into is that like the invasion of like this sleepover space. Right. Like sleepovers with your friends can be such a, such a like a safe, wholesome environment um, you know, everyone's like giggling and gossiping and just like watching movies and staying up too late. 
and um, you know the there's a real invasion of that safe space. I think um, that's like very very uncomfortable, and that like I doubt it. There's um, I think most people have had to deal with that fear. I think a lot of women mm-hmm. and a lot of other people as well have 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 reckoned with like balancing being home alone or being home alone with your friends and like thinking about like barricading your house, you know? And there's so many layers to that, like sleepover element mm-hmm. because if, cause like for the friends that are coming over, it's not their home. So it's already a little bit feeling unbalanced and yeah, they're like 18 year olds, but it's still, there's, there's still like barely just not kids anymore. Yeah. So there's still kind of like this thing of like, Oh wow. If shit hits the fan, there's no adults here to like handle it. Right. You know, it's on us. And it's like, when you're in that point in high school, it's kind of like this, that weird stepping stone of like, Oh, I now have to be the problem solver. Sometimes yeah. You have and things like that. quite a bit of autonomy at that point. Like, yeah, you're, you have a lot of responsibility on your shoulders, but you're still, still a baby. Yeah, absolutely. And I liked how you spoke on the, the kind of like in, invasiveness that's in this because like clover talks about that's like one of the elements of the slashers the terrible place yes. is like how she terms yes. it and there's like a few scenarios of that and one of them is taking something that is familiar and turning it into a terrible place mm. which is what this movie does mm-hmm. but there's we get the invasion before russ thorn shows up though with jeff and neil being peeping toms in when they're like spying on them and mm-hmm. everything and because we get because there's like two instances in this movie we already talked about the shower scene of amy holden jones just particularly putting on screen the literal high school male fantasy which is the locker room and the slumber party and this is when we get to she like puts on screen like them them that fantasy being fulfilled for for these two dudes whatever and again it's very much like that locker room scene where like they're just changing in front of an open window. They're talking about sex and their friends being caught having sex and everything. Mm-hmm. And it's just... And they're eager too. They're like, they're like hyped up. That's like something we're going to do socially together, which is like, I mean, there's a little bit of gayness there too. It's like, we're going to look at naked girls together. We're going to get boners together, you know? Like, that's not 100% straight. <laughs> Come on, guys. Like... <laughs> oh my god just kiss each other already like come on now just kiss each other oh my god yeah it's it's weird and you know we get that but yeah it is that invasive invasiveness in it that like you know they aren't completely safe and Mm -hmm. have that autonomy like like they they can't do what they want to do without being you know looked at and they can't do what they want to do without having someone wanting to come in and kill them so yeah and I think the the presence of the two peeping toms is also really interesting because even though this movie is very satirical, like just the sheer number of jump scares one after another, I feel like is its own gag. Like I was like, am I watching a Blumhouse movie or is this something different? Is this on purpose or is it just Blumhouse? I don't know. Um, but like the uh, just having them there, it's a it's a red herring, right? It's like. It's, it's an acceptable fear. It's a fear that we are, are used to, unfortunately, a fear that we're used to reckoning with, right? Like, oh, it's just like mm-hmm. the pervy There's being teenage. boys. Just, yeah, boys being boys, exactly. Um, so there, it's like a, it's kind of a, um, it, it ramps up your fear, but it also takes it, it takes your guard down a little bit too, because it's a familiar fear, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the movie actually does a pretty good job at, 
linking this scene to the scene later on that we talked about the helter skelter scene with like i love you it takes a lot of love to Mm -hmm. do this to a person because the conversation that the boys are having at the window i forget which girl that they were talking about but like one of them undresses and the guy goes i don't think i've been giving her enough attention in in the high school boy's brain that means you know affection or you know this is i'm doing this because i like you in a sense so like and again i am intruding and invading your privacy like like this because i now have this weird affection i can't explain it's just lust but um and same thing with russ thorne he can't explain why he or at least we don't think he can explain why he wants to hurt these women like mm-hmm. this but he expresses it as love so it's kind of like a weird connection that the movie's playing on between those two with like the fantasized horrible thing that russ is doing and like the actual real thing that is like what we just said we kind of just accept this boys being boys but it's actually kind of fucked up <laughs> can, can we get into more like what russ says at the end or do you want to do you want to go into some other stuff because i feel like that's a really good parallel that the movie sets up yeah sure yeah please please go ahead yeah um yeah because i think like i i i'm really glad you picked up on the relationship between those two between the like the 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 few lines of dialogue we get towards his motivation for all these killings, and the sort of like presence of the everyday like creep culture um, that we sort of accept, we collectively accept um, or used to accept, still accept, um, and I think it's such. I don't know if it was Roger Corman who was like writing and directing. I don't think he would have picked up on this. I don't think he would have put that information in there because, you know, the, the idea of love being confused with obsession and love being confused with possession is such a product of the patriarchy, uh, capitalist patriarchy, the idea that like to love something is to own it, to control it, to possess it. Um, that, that you are moved by something and therefore you must do something to it. You must affect that thing. You can't just exist in your feelings for whatever it is that you're appreciating. You must possess it. You must own it. And in love and in uh, Russ's case, it's like, well, I can't have so many feelings about these people that I'm appreciating. And therefore it's too, it must be destroyed. Um, and I think there's a, she, she packs in a lot of information with just a few words about what really toxic love manifests as, you know, and the, and the, the two peeping toms do that too. It's like, wow, I really appreciate how pretty this girl is. Therefore, I'm going to like violate her consent. I'm going to like encroach on her space. I'm going to like try and trick her into tricking, trick, trick her into like seeing her naked, like. Okay, but you just said that you liked this person, presumably. Why would you treat someone that you like that way? And so for a movie from 1982 that's just this, like, campy slasher, like, comedy, there's so much there in those, like, very few lines. Thank you for articulating it that way, because that's exactly how I think that this needs to be seen Mm -hmm. and recognized. I think think that was very well put. And you know what? I take back what I said. This is a rich text. Yeah, this It is. I mean, there's there's so much stuff to get to to you know pick up there and everything. And God, it's it's very weird with just 
Anyways, and to your point about Roger Corman, I don't think he had any sort of role. I think he just funded it. That's sure, it. and um, and I feel like that's the kind of yeah. thing that's gonna like slide by someone who's like, no, I need I need tits and gore in this in this horror movie, and so they're not gonna pick up on that text either. But like, I can guarantee that like a lot of women would pick up on that text, and I think a lot of other people would as well. This isn't necessarily on the list, but I kind of had this fear of, like, growing up, mm. or, like, kind of, like, losing your innocence, and Amy Holden Jones kind of gets into that a little bit, but the, there's a couple scenes I wanted to point out that really made me think of that, was, well, besides the obvious metaphor in this about, like, rape or just sex yeah. and, you know, violent sex with that, that he presents with his corkscrew drill, um, there's... This movie opens up on Trish, you know, getting dressed ready for school, and she throws away her her childhood toys. Mm-hmm. She throws away her Barbie doll. Yeah. And who picks it up? Russ picks up the Barbie doll and then mutilates it later on, and it comes back in the movie. And it's very much like a, an obvious metaphor and also foreshadowing what he wants to do to them. But it's also the Barbie doll representing her innocence in childhood and him destroying that and taking away the innocence. And it's... Yeah, uh, th- that metaphor is there and everything. So I kind of took that as like this fear of growing up, but it's like it's not just growing up. I'm having a hard time articulating how I, how I actually feel about that. But are you like picking up what I'm putting down? Yeah. <laughs> oh no, hundred percent. And I think yeah. the fear of is is not growing up. The fear is 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 early death, right? The fear is being is having your time cut short. Mm. I think you know I referenced I mentioned Ted Bundy earlier, but like part of why he's so notorious because there was lots of serial killers around that time that were killing lots of people and getting away with it for years. Um, But why he became so notorious is he was killing pretty young white girls and those three things together, right? Pretty young, you know, uh, to quote the police in another infamous murder case um, uh, or to paraphrase from the police in another really infamous murder cases, like, uh, uh, actual victims you know the idea that like these are the people that we value the most in our society therefore it's the most tragic when they die or when they're when they're killed therefore he is the ultimate monster um so Mm. you know i got i'm if you haven't (laughs) if you can't tell i'm also a huge true crime nerd so like (laughs) i was picking up a lot of references too in this movie to like just a lot of like really famous cases about um, this sort of the the terrible murder happens, but that there's this added trauma of of how the media capitalizes and profits off of the death of a certain kind of victim. You know, so I, I feel like mm. collectively, like this, you know, this type of victim uh, can hit home more for lots of terrible racist systemic problem problematic reasons. Yeah. And, and and the youth part of it is like really key in that as well. Yeah, no, you're right cuz that I, I wasn't really I guess I didn't think about too much of like the youthful part of it about how cuz like you said like it's it's not just the fear of death it's the fear of early death. Yeah. And I th- I think I think that's a really good way to put that. There's also something about I I I I there's also something about dread to be said in relation to this movie like I think the idea that like we as the view maybe not necessarily the characters but we as the viewer going into the genre we know everyone we see on screen 
we're assuming most of them are going to die. So we're watching it, waiting for these people to die. It's like an acceptable way to feel disgust. To like, you know, like, hmm. like pop in a pimple, you know, it's like gross, but satisfying at the same time. So <laughs> I think, so I think when you look, look at this kind of movie where you're like the new genre that you just coined, the horror hangout genre, uh, you're just waiting for these people, you know, they're going to die, you know, they're going to go through some shit, right? So there's this sense of dread, too, that's a big part of this kind of movie that I think was really interesting how they how they dealt with that in the movie because it's so funny and campy there's so many drum scares it kind of the horror kind of sneaks up on you you know and it does do a good mix of things like you said like it has the dread it has mm-hmm. the jump scares it has the, the the shock value of actually seeing the gore yeah. and yeah there's there's so many things there and this also has like those real life fears that we talked about like with the pimping toms yeah. and everything because those will speak differently to some people than it will just you know the average moviegoer for you know, but um, Amy Holden Jones has a very unique take on this movie. Lay it on me. I want to hear it. I, I think it's appropriate to bring it up here in the fear analysis because the way she phrases it uses the word fear. And she's her interpretation of Slumber Party Massacre is that it is a metaphor for a virgin's fear of sex, <laughs> specifically a virgin's fear of sex. And this is her quote. I might try to splice it in here if I can. But she says, Oh, no, oh, no, he's coming with that big thing. What's he going to do to me? Uh, well, you have to credit Rita Mae Brown with, with the central metaphor. The central metaphor, I think, of Slumber Party Massacre, which I don't know if I even knew it at the time, is about, obviously, uh, a virgin's fear of sex. You know, oh, no, he's coming at me with that big thing. What's he going to do to me? You know? I think that's basically... Most great horror movies have a underlying metaphor, and, that's, and so she did the big thing. And <laughs> that is her quote about this movie and the types of fears it plays off of. And I'm watching it. I never would have thought it was specifically the fear of a virgin just being scared of sex in general. Never would have picked that up That from that. We're, we're, I, I, don't, I don't know if I still get that necessarily. Cause if you, cause saying that feels sounds a little bit more innocent. Like that feels like just somebody that's nervous to, you know, have sex or something like that. But it, I feel like the movie is way more abrupt and brutal than that. But do you agree with this metaphor that she thinks that this movie Wait, represents? What was the quote again? Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> we... Oh no. Oh no. He's coming at me with that big thing. What is he going to do to me? I mean, like, <laughs> I feel like, okay, here's my take on that. I love it. I love her. She's great. <laughs> but also, um, Okay, so I'm going to date myself a little bit, but I, when I was in university in film classes, in weird sex art film classes, uh, it was like early aughts, mid aughts. Um, and it's right at a cross point when Freudian analysis is really, Freudian analysis of art is really on the outs and you have much more like intersectionality and cognitive stuff coming into play from what I remember. So... When you watch movies like this that were made in this time, I understand how that's the fo- that's the focus of everyone on their mind. They're always looking at stuff as like phallic or yonic, penetration, envelopment. It's very binary and it's very specific to like uh, 
I don't know if this is going to be too graphic for, for your podcast, but it's very specific to like penetrative sex as opposed to like all the different kinds of sex that can be out there. So I don't read that at all in the movie because I literally forget that that's the sort of mindset. I have to always remind myself that that's kind of the mindset of like how some art was made was like with this, I don't want to say um, obsessive, but kind of like a weird fixation to borrow Freud's term on like this bi- this binary, this like phallic binary, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So I do love that for her, but I did not get that. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't get it either. I got it fear of just, you know, sexual assault, yeah. but I wasn't getting, yeah. I wasn't getting the fear of just like being a virgin woman and, losing said virginity but uh again i'm not a woman so I, I don't know if i would have been able to pick that up if it was there and i think even just the concept of virginity has changed so much the way that we talk about virginity between from like 1982 to like to 2022 so we're 40 years later like i feel like it's such a foreign concept to me at all that like you would that's something to like prize or that's something to be afraid of or whatever like I don't know maybe it's the internet's broken all of our brains like there's no there's no mystery anymore of like what is that big thing gonna do it's like well you can look that you've already seen that like six thousand times like accidentally on youtube you know like <laughs> i don't know <laughs> um, <laughs> it's just it's just a hell of a quote i had to sneak it so in so good yeah. though i but i i'm not being like facetious when i like facetious when i say like i love that for her like i really do love that for her like i'm glad <laughs> While we're still talking about the fear analysis, was there any part of this movie that you thought was the scariest part? Oh, to me, it was really like, I thought his, it was two things. It was the shot. Um, I don't know if it was scary, but I loved it. Like I legitimately loved it. I would frame that shot of like the legs with the like drill coming down, like, and her screaming. I love that shot. So it was so perfectly framed. Um, it's a good poster for sure. Absolutely. And, and I think his speech at the end is so creepy, like for a movie that's so goofy, I was not expecting something so real to like come out of his mouth. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it, it, that, I think definitely the final moments of the movie are like the scariest part of it. I think the part I had as the scariest for me was when, and it's towards the end when we're kind of having this mini chase scene and the two girls lock themselves in Trisha's room and they barricade themselves in there. And then yes. Russ Thorne sneaks in through the window and they don't realize he's there. And just, mm-hmm. and it, I mean, it's a good moment of tension because they do knock him out for like a second and they're rushing to try to get out of there. And it's, it's pretty good. It was pretty good. And then he stalks throughout the rest of the house, just looking for them. So, all of that I has the scariest part of this movie. Yeah, the ending of the movie was like very good for a movie that like sets up so many punchlines and so many you know fake out jump scares. It's like it's like really legitimately scary by the end. Like when he comes out of the when he like um, he's in the living room and they like have him covered up and the baseball coach finally shows up. Um, and you're mm-hmm. like, no, he's gonna sit up. He's gonna sit up. Like we've seen this horror movie, so we've seen this kind of thing in a horror movie so many times, but it was still like very scary. You still don't want it to happen. I also wanted to mention the other really good chase scene that we got to got at the beginning of this movie was with Linda. Yeah. She goes back into the locker room mm-hmm. to fetch her textbook. This was a pretty good chase. That scene. was a I really, really solid chase scene. This was really good. My only complaint 
when she finally lost him at the back of the locker room, why didn't she just leave the locker room instead of going to that closet? Yeah, I don't know. That's the only thing that bugs me. But this was a good chase scene. I really did like that. And that was, I remember, I think that was like one of the, the first point in the movie where I was hooked. I was like, oh, wow, this is going to be like mm-hmm. an actual slasher with chase scenes and stuff. And this is good. I'm, I'm here and for this, it. And that was, yeah. The setup is so campy, too, because she's like, oh, I forgot something. Okay, I'll see you later. Bye. Like, the way that they delivered their lines was Goodbye so, forever. Like, literally, <laughs> we all like, well, girl, you're not coming back. We know that. Like, we know this is over. There's lots of great moments for this movie. It's definitely a rich text. I'll fight anyone who says otherwise. It is. And, like, Amy Holden Jones, I will say, I love the direction of this. I probably should have talked about this at, at the beginning, but I loved how she framed all of her shots. Um I think like two of my favorite mm-hmm. examples were at the beginning of this with the telephone repair woman, because as she's being murdered in the van, you can see the guys walking away while she's being killed in the background. And then later yeah. when everybody's leaving campus, we, we get that bird's eye view of them just walking by the dumpster where her body is in. And mm-hmm. she did a really good job at adding depth into her, her shots. And you, you can see what's going on in the background while, the foreground characters are doing stuff and all of it felt like a metaphor all these like moments where she had something crazy going on in the background with something innocent in the foreground just i love like all these metaphors i felt like she was putting down because those two examples that i just brought up with the telephone woman it kind of just made me feel like of how we've kind of been talking about about how how like passive people are about just like violence against women like it's right there happening in broad mm-hmm. day, daylight but people are just walking right by it and then this one is a little bit more tinfoil hat theory, but this is what oh, I got no, the first the first time I watched it. So you're you're familiar with like the Bechtel test, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So for people who don't know, and let me know if I'm like saying it incorrectly, but it's it's kind of like a thought experiment of is there a scene in a movie where only women are in a scene together and they are not talking about a, another man? Yeah, there's a, well, there's a couple versions of it because, uh, and it's and like you said, it's a thought experiment. It's a way to get you to think differently about um, media that you're looking at. So some people say like the character, the women have to be named. It can't just be two characters, two women. Yes, it has to be yeah. two named women. Some people say it has to be more than two lines of dialogue, or it has to be at least two lines of dialogue. And the test, there's a lot of people who have created like newer versions of the test to include like black women, Asian women. Um, I just was reading the other day about like trans characters having like, is this trans character? Like, is the story about something other than their transition? Is it played by an actual trans person or a straight dude? Um, So yeah, it's a great way to analyze media, but yeah, the Bechdel test is where it started. Thank you for laying all that down because I was doing a bad job with it. No, you did a great job. The scene where, that scene I talked about, that I I thought was so scary at the end where they're barricaded in the room and he sneaks in because this was like a moment where we got two girls together and then they think they're safe and then he like just creeps back in and to me it's just kind of like, it's just, I don't know why, but I was kind of like, this is kind of like a funny gag about there's how like no movie could pass the Bechdel test because like, even though you think they're safe he's the man sneaks in a little bit and then like still, I don't know I thought like in his, his, his opinion yeah <laughs> like I don't know I, I thought that was like kind of like a funny visual gag of just like nothing will pass the Bechdel test or I mean I know that's not true but I just kind of thought that was a little funny about how like it's so hard for stuff like a movie that that's is really purely cute. I didn't just yeah. about women like this movie is predominantly only women in it and that like 
we can't have one scene that passed the Bechtel test in it. I thought that was kind of funny. Um, well, <laughs> funny in, in like a purposeful, like metaphor gag sort of way. Yeah. But um, yeah, I don't sure. know. That's my tinfoil thing that I got from that. Um, <laughs> no, I love it. And I think does it regardless of intent, you know, you know, you're watching a movie 40 years later than when it was made. Like all you have is your, you know, the intent is, is really just a small part of how you got to look at something. Like your reaction is like, or your, your takeaways is like, that's your experience with the movie, and so it's always valid. So, was there any sort of message or take home that you got from this? Um, I think I, I think I kind of touched on it already, but I think like, I really feel like there's a lot of. A, with this kind of like slasher film in the 80s you know we're in the reagan era which is like a really dark time um so i think like horror movies are so they're so visceral and they're so um direct and brutal like there's no none of this like robert eggers the witch the lighthouse there's no like ariaster this is a mushroom trip slash fairy tale slash revenge story like it's just like girls being murdered there are some boobs. So I think like, (laughs) (laughs) that's my my tagline for this episode is girls get murdered. There are boobs. (laughs) Um, But, but like, again, like I feel like it's a, it's a decade where you're like, people are recovering from these like horrible series. They're like, you were on the cusp of the satanic panic too. Like, there's some shit that is going down in people's psyches. So I, I, I can't tell. I, the message of this movie is like, I don't know. doesn't matter. I think it's real fun. And I think um, they did a good job. And like you said, like the directing is so good in it. Um, but it's also kind of dated because like that Freud stuff just is wild to me now. You know? Yeah, I mean, I feel like that yeah. I've kind of talked a lot about, too, what I felt like this movie was trying to do and everything. But really, at the end, at the end of the day, I think it's about, oh, no, oh, no, he's coming at me with that big thing. What's he going to do? <laughs> Literally. I think that's the, th- the take I'm just kidding. But, no, I think um, you're yeah, right. I mean, like, that's what she went in. She's like, this is what my movie's about. And to be fair, that is what the movie is. Visually, that is the, what the movie is, you know? So Visually, yeah. yeah. I mean, God, there's the, the visual gags and metaphors yeah. in this, it's just... It's really the good. Way, it, like, it is. It is actually a rich they, like, text. Pass Brucker's stupid. Yeah. <laughs> no, but the way they like just like slice off the drill and that like little tink sound, tink. Like I don't know who was in the editing booth that was like, we need that sound effect. Who did the foley for that? Yes, they are the Academy Award for that person. Like honestly. Anyways, okay, yeah. Okay. So I, I feel like I've kind of exhausted messaging throughout this whole conversation. But if I think people, we had, I have, loved, I loved hearing your takes. Like you picked up on stuff that I that I didn't even think about. I love vice versa, same thing. Yeah, and this is why I love having guests on because we get to just pick each other brains and yeah. share ideas. It's that's my favorite thing about this. Um, but if other people listening have ideas about what this movie is about in terms of messaging, comment on Instagram. Yeah, tell me that I'm wrong. All right. Come comment on my page that I'm wrong. And then comment on Brucker's page that he's wrong. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, And then I will block you. I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) You're going to have a bunch of people coming out. You're going to have all the the Freud heads coming out. You know what? The only time I actually ever got, like, people, like, leaving hate comments was when I was writing about Paul Thomas Anderson. That was the only time I got people, like, being a fucking whiny baby in in my DMs. 
It is time for the final segment, the Cabin in the Woods trinket segment. If people are not familiar, this is when we pick a movie prop that we would take from the Slumber Party Massacre, put it in the basement of the Cabin in the Woods that would summon Russ Thorne to come and drill you to pieces. Wow, that was uh, crazy coming out of my mouth. Um, Ellie, what's, what prop or props do you think deserve to be in the basement of the Cabin in the Woods? So I was, I really, I really just wanted to like find a reason to talk about the snail hunt. Um, <laughs> I was going to say snails. It's not my real answer, but I, I just wanted to say like, yo, that neighbor was murdering the snails for no reason. The snails will conjure Mr. Contact and he was a creep, I think. He yo, was... that character, we didn't even talk about him. He was so creepy. Pervy next door neighbor, like, don't worry, I'll watch out for you. Get away, get away. No. Yes. And also, doesn't he say like a ridiculously high number? He's like, that makes 60 or something like that. It's like, whoa. Yeah, no. Dude, he's so excited. He's committing snail genocide. It's not cool. No, so my actual answer is the classic denim Canadian tuxedo. Denim jeans, denim jacket. That's what you need. That it's so innocuous, it's so wholesome. That is fantastic. I love, I love the the Canadian t- tuxedo. Is the mm-hmm. the the thing that will summon Russ Thorne. I love it. And thank you for not being cliche and picking the drill. No, um, I love it. Even though the drill, it is a good drill. I would, I would definitely put that in there. The thing about the cabin in the woods trinkets is that like they have it has to, to look innocent. Exactly, because all no one's gonna be like, what is this sharp murder object? It's got to be like yeah, wholesome. Exactly. And that is why I am picking the Sylvester Stallone Playgirl to Hell go into yes. the cabin in the woods basement. Because <laughs> somebody will pick that up. Somebody yeah. absolutely will pick They're that like, up. What, go, is the, what weird porn from the 80s is this? You know. Sylvester Stallone? What? Yes, that is it. No, thank you. Um, no, thank you, ma'am. Yes, and I, I, I think that's um, I think that's like the best trinket I think I've ever put down there in the basement. <laughs> It's a weird one. If, if I if if I'm allowed to honk my own or toot my own horn, I will. Um, I'm I'm going to do that there. But yeah, uh, I, think I think that's, that's a good that's, idea. Just... And I think also the, the like, I think it's just like, <laughs> I think like the cabin in the wait. Oh, this is another tangent coming. Sorry. We're like, let's say they like, go down in the basement and like the person who picks up the the like playgirl. It's like that's like uh, fulfilling the like eighty slasher like horror trope of like well now you deserve to die because you touched it you touched the porno yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah and and that's the thought but i also wonder like if that was like in there today or you know maybe like 20 years from now like if this was being Mm. made and like that's that sly stallone port like playgirls down there i wonder if it's just like the most ignored trinket though at that point (laughs) he's like oh i don't care i don't care to see that stallone no thank you (laughs) like oh porn no not him no (laughs) but a good Canadian tuxedo, you know, everyone needs a good Canadian tuxedo in their in their wardrobe. So, Sly Stallone in a in a Canadian tuxedo. Yo. That's just chilling in the basement. <laughs> Terrifying. It's just it's not like there's no magazine, there's no denim suit. It's just Stallone in denim. That's it. That's the that's the <laughs> trick. Stallone in denim. Yeah. <laughs> oh, terrifying. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, Ellie, thank you so much for coming on to talk about the Slumber Party Massacre. This was so much fun. We got to really get into this movie and just talk about so many different things. And you shed a lot of light on things that I was definitely missing. And that's why I wanted to have 
you on here to, to have that perspective and everything. So thank you so much for coming on well, to talk about this movie. Thank you for inviting me. It was truly an honor. I did love talking about this very strange, wonderful movie that I'm, I'm going to watch it multiple times. Uh, I think it might be a comfort movie, actually. So It is. Yeah. It got, it's a secret comfort movie. I love it. Yeah, it's... <laughs> It's 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 wonderful for that. But again, thank you, Ellie. Would you please remind the folks where they can find you? Uh, you can find me at Bad Critic on Instagram, and that's Bad underscore Critic underscore. And I try to post every week about some interesting movies, old, new, indie, horror, um, trash, classic, whatever it might be. Usually, you'll find something interesting. Um, and I write some longer stuff too. I uh, last thing I wrote was a very messy analysis of The Shining that did, I'm not joking, did break my brain. And um, that's what happens when you try to research anything about Kubrick. And I'm working on something much lighter uh, that should be out this Friday if I get my shit together. Or rather, if you're hearing it now, it might already be out. So go check that out. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ellie. And I'll put links for Bad Critic in the show notes. Once you go ahead and give Horror Press another thank you, be sure to go to horrorpress.com to look at other articles and be sure to go to Bad Critic and look at some articles as well. But Horror Press is great. I really enjoy the, the people there. Want to go ahead and give a thank you to the patrons. Thank you to Tiffany and Jasher. You guys rule. If you want to join my Patreon, you can head over to patreon.com slash Horror. But at the very least, I just ask that you follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Horror. Share me with your friends and family. And I will see you guys next time. Be sure to watch some good movies. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks again, Ellie.